1: This episode is brought to you by Gigantic. At Gigantic, you can level up your product skills through live small group cohort-based trainings. We're incredibly excited to welcome you to our next cohort of our product strategy training kicking off in January of 2024. This course will take you through the frameworks that product leaders use at companies like eBay, DoorDash, Groupon, Rent the Runway in order to scale their teams. It's taught by Ben Foster, a friend of this podcast, who is the former chief product officer at Whoop. So come join us. Go to gigantic.is. That's gigantic.is and save your seat for our January cohort. Your potential is gigantic and we're here to help you reach it. Go to gigantic.is to reserve your seat today. This episode is brought to you today by Gusto. Payroll and benefits are hard, especially when you're a small business. Gusto is making payroll, benefits and HR easy for modern small businesses. You no longer have to be part of a big company to get great technology, great benefits and a great service to take care of your team.
0: To help support the show, Gusto is offering our listeners an exclusive limited time deal. You sign up today, you will get 3 months free once you run your first payroll. Just go to gusto.com/ rocket ship again gusto.com slash
1: rocket ship all right so i am back this week but i am missing a co-host belcido is heads down working on next season of rocket Chip, and it is going to be a good one it's right around the corner we're probably looking at a february launch for season six and i can tell you the title Blockland. That's right. We're going to be diving into the strange world of of blockchain and cryptocurrency with a huge focus on what is happening right now in Cleveland, Ohio. Cleveland, Ohio wants to be the crypto capital. And we've got Mike Belsito on the ground researching how this came about. Will it work? And what do the people working inside of the government actually think of this initiative? So that is coming up on season six of Rocketship. In the meantime, we are going to keep bringing you some amazing interviews. And today is no exception. We have Andy Ratcliffe, who was a co-founder of Benchmark Capital. They've invested in Uber and Twitter, a lot of other companies that you know. But today he's joining us as the CEO of Wealthfront. Wealthfront is his post-VC initiative, and he started this really to help people with their finances. It has now become a giant project of its own. So we're so excited to talk to him about the early days of Wealthfront, his transition from VC to entrepreneurship, and what he's learned a bit along the way. So stay tuned you're not going to want to miss this one. Welcome to Rocketship.fm. Rocket FM is produced in partnership with Product Collective. We are your hosts, Michael Saka and Mike Belsito. So raise your hand if you've heard of WellFront. All right, no, I'm just kidding. I can't see your hand. So uh, instead, I'll just let Andy explain it to
2: you. Sure. Well, our vision is to enable a service where All you have to do is set up a direct deposit with us, and we take care of the rest. That we literally will pay all your bills for you, we'll top off your emergency fund if you need that, we'll invest the remaining money in the appropriate accounts, whether they be at Wealthfront or elsewhere, and all of this is done on your behalf in an optimal fashion. So you get to focus on what you want to do, like your career or your family, and you don't have to worry about your finances. You have some of the smartest PhDs in the world on this subject taking care of all that for you in the form of software.
1: So we talk a lot about unusual stories here on the show, um, and Andy Ratcliffe is no exception. So Andy actually co-founded Benchmark Capital, which is one of the most incredible VC firms. They've invested in eBay, OpenTable, Snapchat, Twitter, and Uber. Um, And so he came from the world of VC and then entered the world of fintech with Wealthfront. I asked Andy a bit about how this all came together for him.
2: I was a career venture capitalist. I had spent almost 25 years in the venture capital business, uh, the last 10 of which was with a firm that I co-founded called Benchmark Capital. And I had retired from Benchmark and wanted to give back because I had a life beyond anything that I could ever have imagined. So I wanted to give back to the institutions that put me in a position to get there, which were my... Uh, undergraduate alma mater, University of Pennsylvania, where I joined the board of trustees and my grad school alma mater, the Stanford Graduate School of Business, where I became a lecturer. So I wanted to give back by teaching there. My wife and I started an innovative cancer research funding initiative. And uh, as part of my responsibilities as a trustee at Penn, I was on the board of the endowment uh, investment committee Penn's Endowment is now the seventh largest university endowment in the world. And the premier university endowments are the best managed pools of capital in the world. So one day I was sitting in the, in the endowment meeting and the investment team was talking about how they generate their great returns. They do it very similarly with the other premier endowments. And it was a very manual process. And it just struck me that if we automated it through software, we could actually democratize access to sophisticated financial or investment advice. And this was important to me because when I was a venture capitalist, many of the people that I recruited to my portfolio companies who went on to financial success would come to me for investment advice. And I could never tell them to do what I do because even with their success, they still couldn't afford the minimums associated with the best investment products and services. And by making endowment-style investing available to the masses, I was doing a social good. And that was my total focus at the time. And had I known how hard it was going to be, I probably never would have done it.
1: But he didn't go it alone. He called in the help of some friends. And his years in venture capital gave him some amazing connections. And not long after coming up with the idea, one day he was talking to a friend and started pitching him. Uh, to come on as a co-founder.
2: But uh, when I came home from this meeting in Philadelphia, I talked to a friend of mine about the idea who had just retired from eBay. And in, in the first instance of the business, there was a community element to it. And my friend, Jeff Jordan, who had run PayPal and eBay North America for eBay, was an expert on marketplaces and communities. And I said, Hey, would you like to do this as a hobby? And he said, sure. So we hired a developer. And here
1: Wealthfront was born. But before they could launch, they actually had to file with the SEC. and, And being a fintech company, they do have restrictions on what they're able to do. Most startups, they can play kind of fast and loose at the beginning. But Wealthfront needed to be buttoned up from the start in order to stay compliant. Now, you may or may not have run into kind of SEC regulations in the past, but there are some very interesting rules that they have that you have to think about when you're marketing and building your product. Here's Andy.
2: The biggest thing that you can't do because of regulation in the investment world is you're not allowed to use testimonials which is the basis on which most every successful company is launched. And it's especially challenging in the investing world because investing is based on trust. And the best way to generate trust is through testimonials. So imagine how challenging it is to launch a new investment service if you can't give any testimonials. Now, there's a good reason for it. Testimonials are, uh, can be abused to create Ponzi schemes. And that's why the SEC doesn't allow it. But most people don't know how to evaluate an investment manager or financial advisor. So they focus on their assets under management, which are actually a terrible way to evaluate someone. But it puts a startup at a tremendous disadvantage because how do you attract assets if you don't have any assets?
1: We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you today by Gusto. Payroll and benefits are hard, especially for small businesses. You don't have the time to be an expert on things like taxes and regulations.
0: And there are old school payroll providers that exist, but they're just not built for the modern business.
1: Gusto is making payroll benefits and HR easy for small businesses. Modern technology does the heavy lifting, so it's easy to get things right.
0: Now, again, there is some competition for Gusto out there, but Gusto actually has a lot of things going for them. PC Mag and Fit Small Business, they've called Gusto the best payroll for small businesses.
1: Gusto makes payroll a breeze. In fact, nine out of 10 users say Gusto is easier to use than other payroll solutions.
0: And Gusto definitely saves you time. 72% of customers, they actually spend less than five minutes to run payroll. I know a lot of people that spend
1: way more. Gusto is reliable, four out of five customers actually reduce payroll errors after switching.
0: And if you don't believe it, just Google it. People love Gusto. And how often do you actually love your payroll provider? Almost
1: never. Most small businesses, they don't have an HR expert, but you don't need one to use Gusto. With great software and great service, you can focus on your business, not on your payroll or your paperwork. To help support the show, Gusto is offering our listeners an exclusive limited time deal. Sign up today and you'll get three months free once you run your first payroll. Just go to gusto.com forward slash rocket ship. That's gusto.com forward slash rocket Now... Back to the show. So here's a fun piece of trivia for you. Do you know who invented the phrase product market fit? You've probably used product market fit hundreds of times in your career. Or if you're just starting out, you will use that phrase hundreds of times. But Andy Ratcliffe was actually the first person to coin the term product market fit about 15 years ago. Now he is faced with that same problem that he was trying to teach founders how to do is he had to actually do it for his own company. You know, it took a minute.
2: Well, the difficult part is finding what I call product market fit. This is a term that I coined about 15 years ago and I actually teach a course on it At Stanford Graduate School of Business. It's the thing that I think is critical to the success of a technology startup. It doesn't matter how good of an executive or manager you are if the dogs don't want to eat the dog food. So the key to success is to build a product that serves a desperate audience. If you don't uniquely offer something for which people are desperate, you have no hope of succeeding because. Human nature is such that they'll go with good enough. Better doesn't win. You have to build something that they can't get elsewhere. And it took us about three years of changing the definition of the product before we came upon the desperate audience. And that wasn't until uh, December of 2011 when we launched our current service.
1: Three years it took them. It is not always fast to find product market fit. Luckily, Andy had the runway where they could take that three years and really discover what their product market fit was. And you're probably wondering, what was the sign that he saw that gave them that product market fit? It's the same sign that you should be looking for in any product that you're building.
2: Well, I think the best test of product market fit is exponential organic growth companies can fake themselves and others into thinking they're successful based on advertising. That if you buy a lot of ads and get people to come to your site or your service, that you're succeeding. But if they don't continue to engage with that service and love it so much that they want to tell their friends about it, you really haven't found product market fit. So the best judge of whether or not you've achieved word of mouth is exponential organic growth because you can't get that without word of mouth.
1: Okay, so if product market fit is defined by kind of organic word of mouth growth, what were they doing for those three years before they had product market fit? So I dug into this a bit more with Andy to find out what were the experiments that they ran that didn't work and what were the signs that it was starting to work?
2: Well, we built a marketplace of investment managers who uh, we thought could outperform the market based on an algorithm that's used by all of the Ivy League endowments. And not only did we vet these managers, but we lowered their minimum from in excess of a million dollars to only $10,000. And the good, the good news was that the algorithm actually worked for the year and a half. It took us a while to, to build the system and attract all the managers. But once we did, uh, the managers that we attracted post-selection on our platform outperformed the market by 4% net of fees. Over the year and a half, we operated that service. The bad news was that nobody cared. So it was too complex, number one. And number two, it was only applicable to the U.S. stock portion of your portfolio. If, if you manage your portfolio well, you diversify. So you should include a bunch of different asset classes. You should have U.S. stocks, foreign stocks, bonds, maybe a little real estate, maybe uh, some natural resources in there. But we were only appropriate for U.S. equity managers, which should represent about a third of your holdings. And so when we dug in and started calling people who started an application but ended up choosing not to go forward with it, we got very consistent feedback, which was, I would rather that you manage all of my money adequately and inexpensively than a portion of it superbly. And the consistency of the message was quite amazing, which was a surprise. And uh, I learned from the best product person I ever met, Scott Cook, who is the founder and executive chairman at Intuit, that whenever you launch a product and you find a surprise, that's where all the value lies. So we decided to go all in on this idea of managing all of your money versus just a portion of it. And we did it adequately and inexpensively with index funds. And once we launched that service, it took off immediately. So we hit a nerve. And, and because we hit a nerve, people told their friends. And because we focused on a young demographic, ideally people who are under 40, uh, they were much more likely to share. Now. Our service uh, is solely delivered via software on mobile and web, which means we deliver uh, financial planning, investment management, and banking services, all exclusively through software. There are no advisors. Now, our clientele says we pay you not to talk to us, but older people are conditioned to want to talk to someone. So we're not built for an older clientele who today has a lot more money than the younger clientele, but all of the growth and assets is going to be from the young people because they're in the wealth accumulation phase of their lives, not the wealth preservation phase. All right. So we
1: heard about product market fit from the man who invented the phrase- but I asked him, what about ads? Did he, did he try running ads? Was that an option for growth for them now that they've found it's that okay. market fit?
2: We specifically don't do advertising because it's not economic in our space. If you think about it, we charge only a quarter of a percent to, deli- to uh, deliver our service, which is a quarter of what the average financial advisor charges. So if if they have access to the same advertising channels we do, then all things being equal, they should be able to charge for uh, be able to pay four times as much for the ad, so it can't be economic to us.
1: Now Andy spent most of his time in the VC world. I wanted to see if his opinion had changed at all now that he was sitting on the other side of the table.
2: So the, the funny thing about the venture business is that 2 or 3% of the venture firms generate 95% of the venture industry's realized returns. So that says that only two or 3% are worth having as investors, the others all suck. So it's your challenge to be able to attract the really good ones and the really good ones understand this process. And we were really fortunate to have the good ones.
1: Okay, so finally we touched on AI. AI is used heavily. In Wealthfront. And so I asked Andy about his opinion of where AI was going, its current capabilities, and how it's benefiting Wealthfront as a company.
2: Sure. Well, I think a lot of people misunderstand what AI is capable of and what it's not capable of. And it's not nearly as capable as what most people think. And the robots are not going to control the world like Terminator for for many, many decades. But our problems, the things that we try to solve are really problems of optimization versus AI. So uh, the knowing what to invest in is a very well understood problem called mean variance optimization. It actually won Nobel Prize in 1990. Everything that we do is based on time tested, academically proven approaches. There are no proprietary algorithms that we use. Everything we use has been used for many, many decades, but it's been done manual. We just implemented it. In software. So figuring out how to invest your money, how to uh, plan, uh, how to allow you to explore what you're capable of doing with your money. All these things are optimization problems. Where we use machine learning is uh, taking unstructured data and putting it in a form that our optimization techniques can use. So let me give you an example when we try to figure out how much home you can afford to buy we look at your transactions in your bank account again with your permission but banks don't label rent as rent so if we want to automatically ingest that information and use it to make the best possible recommendations for you First, we have to characterize all your transactions by what they are, and that's a really good use of artificial intelligence, is you can train an algorithm to figure out whether something is rent or utility. It's not good at, what it's terrible at is in figuring out what you should invest in. There are a lot of people who are trying those things out, but there's no academic proof that any of those techniques work.
1: All right, I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Andy Ratcliffe of Wealthfront. You can go to wealthfront.com if you'd like to check it out and sign up. Huge thanks to Andy for coming on and sharing with us today. Thank you so much for listening to Rocketship.fm. It's your support that keeps the show going. Rocketship.fm is now part of the Podglomerate Network. If you want to learn more about the other shows on the Podglomerate Network, go to thepodglomerate.com.
0: Rocketship.fm is produced in partnership with Product Collective, a community for product people. If you go to productcollective.com, you could check out live video interviews, sign up for our newsletter, be a part of our Slack group with over 6,000 product people. Just check it out at productcollective.com.